No, you don't get to make your own choices. And God is a gentleman and he won't make the choices for you. But if you're going to do it his way, you don't get to make your own choices. You were bought with a price. You are now God's. You belong to him. And so when we put on the mind of Christ, we recognize that just as Christ was subject to God, just as Christ had to submit to the will of the Father, so do we have to submit to the will of the Father. And I'm telling you this, living selflessly, truly selflessly, it is a fight. All of Christianity is a fight, start to finish. Getting saved is not easy. We lie when we say it is. It's a battle to turn over your rights, turn from your own wicked living. It is a battle to acknowledge that you are wicked and then to acknowledge you can't fix it yourself. Even the way in is a fight and make no mistake about it, so too is the path once you become a true Christian. This is a war and to win the war, to win a fight, you must know what you are fighting and how you are to win that fight. Today, Pastor Joplin preaches on the four crucial elements of every true Christian's fight. Paul said, I have fought. It is most likely, if you are uh, in your Bibles and you have them turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, I want you to keep something in perspective. The Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Philemon, um, Titus, I don't, I'm probably missing some there. He wrote most of the New Testament. If you have your Bible open and you're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4, I want you to look at verse 7. I have fought the good fight, and I want you to see how close it is to the end of chapter 4. It is most likely that this verse or this chapter, this whatever, this letter, was the last letter that Paul ever wrote. And in everything that he wrote as he was finishing it out, never to write another thing. He finishes with these statements, I have fought. Teaches us something about what I will call true Christianity. If you're a note taker today, you'll notice that at the uh, start of every point, I have these terms, the true Christian. Not the Christian, but the true Christian. Fights to, and we're going to look at what are we fighting. But make no mistake about it, all of Christianity is a fight. Start to finish. Getting saved is a fight. Anybody who tells you that getting saved is easy is lying. It's not easy. It's incredibly difficult to come to grips with that you are a wicked sinner who is destined to a hell for your wicked deeds and that there is no way to be saved except God forgive you. That's a battle. Yes, the cost has been paid. Yes, what Christ did is finished. Yes, all you have to do is turn to him. But in order to do that, you're going to have to deal with the battle of the internal 
grapplings with, are you a wicked sinner who actually needs saved in the first place? The way in is a fight. And make no mistake about it, that's just where the fight starts. Put on the whole armor of God, Paul wrote to the church. All over, we see terms of war. Paul tells Timothy to not be entangled again with civilian pursuits as a good soldier. We see here he's fought the good fight all throughout the New Testament. And when really we study the Old Testament and we see it was a fight for Israel. You want to know one of the reasons this is really important is because if you don't start out with the correct understanding that it's going to take some guts to be a Christian, it's going to take some, some bulldog tenacity at times to dig deep and say, I will not turn to the left or the right. This is a battle. This is a fight. If you don't start that way, you will quit when you find out this is hard. Imagine if we uh, recruited people into our military the same way we recruit them into the church. Imagine if we set up uh, recruiting stations for our military and we just said, listen, this is going to be awesome. Everything you ever wanted, is, the military is going to make your life great. They're going to pay for your college. You're going to meet a bunch of new friends and it's gonna be, you're going to travel the world. It's just going to be great. And they don't even tell you that war is a possibility. They suit you up. You're like, what's this helmet for? What do I need a gun for? It'll just look like I'm in the military. And they just fly you into a combat zone and let you out. And before you know it, you're terrified to death. You're thinking, I didn't sign up for this. I was duped into this. Well, welcome to modern day Christianity. You need to know it's a battle. And if you're going to win the race and finish the race like the Apostle Paul did, you need to understand you're going to have to learn how to fight. And my call this morning is a call to fight. But we need to know what. What is the battle? What are we fighting? And I would uh, um, submit to you that first of all, and when we think about the whole armor of God and we see that we, are, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, we're not fighting each other. I would submit to you that in all sincerity, the things that we uh, take our energy and use to fight um, are not really the spiritual battles we need to be fighting. And so this morning, what I want us to do is look at what I would call four crucial elements of every Christian's fight. Four crucial elements. What are we fighting? The first thing this morning is that a true Christian fights to pursue holiness. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter's on the right side, the other side of Hebrews. 1 Peter chapter 1, let's look at verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, 
you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The true Christian fights to pursue holiness. And I use that term pursue holiness intentionally because holiness does not just happen when we get saved. Nor is it something that just remains, if you will, when we get it right. It is a constant pursuit where we are trying to be more like the God who saved us, where we are learning to grow more and more to become the sons and daughters of God. You know, this word holy, it means to be separated. It means to be different. It's kind of an odd word because what the word basically means, there's not anything to compare it to. Like, what can you compare God to? Does that make sense? And so it's kind of odd to come up with a word. You can't really compare the word to anything else. What it basically means is that God is so different, there's not anything to compare him to. So it puts him off in a category all of his own. He's separate from everything that you could ever think of. He's God all alone, and he's holy. All of his attributes are found in that great big word, holy. His grace, his mercy, his omnipotence, his... uh, You know, his being all-powerful, all-knowing, all that he is, is what makes him that one word, holy. There's nothing like him. Now, here's the command to you and I as Christians. Be holy as he is holy. And I'll tell you this, brothers and sisters, that's a fight. It is a fight to pursue holiness. Especially in a world that mocks it, especially in an era of time where it's not expected of the church. In fact, we're supposedly in many ways not supposed to look any different than the rest of the world. According to modern day hyper grace preaching. But you need to know God's called you to be holy. He's commanded you to be holy and it is a fight Every true Christian will fight for holiness. Fight to be different. I want you to look at one other passage this morning with, as we talk about pursuing holiness. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're new to your Bible this morning, 2 Corinthians is going to come right after 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read verses 14 all the way through down through 7, verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord or unity has Christ with Belial? That's another word for Satan. For what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. I'm not preaching on that context, that text this morning, but you let that sink in. That is such an incredibly deep truth that we are the temple of the living God. When you get a hold of that, that the Holy Spirit, 
lives inside of you that we are the temple of the living God. It'll drive you to pursue holiness. He says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. There's that context of holiness and separation, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. If you're underlining the Bible, underline the word then. It's a very important word, one of the most important words in this entire thought process. Then I will welcome you, but not before. You want to be filthy? You want to touch the unclean thing? You want to live a life that is unseparated? You cannot claim the promises of God on your life. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. The conclusion of the matter is there in verse 1. Since we have these promises, the promises of what? The promises of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The promises of God himself walking amongst us, indwelling us. We are the temple since we have these promises. And since God has promised that if we will come out from among them and be separate, then he will be a father to us. Then we shall be sons and daughters to him. Since we have these promises, the question is, how should we live? And the answer is, let us cleanse ourselves. Notice it is your responsibility to cleanse yourself. It's your responsibility to turn off the filthy garbage that you might be watching on your computer or your phone. It's your responsibility to guard your ears. It's your responsibility to guard your eyes. It's your responsibility to guard your heart. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, when Paul said, I have fought the good fight, it is a fight takes a little bit of tenacity deep inside to say, I am going to fight this thing. I am going to win this thing. I'm not going to just roll over and die. I'm not just going to give in to every passion I have and say, God, I would serve you if you'd take away these wicked passions. No, I'm going to fight them off. I'm going to pursue holiness with all of my being. I'm going to fight to be holy as he is holy. We have become a lazy people. I'm telling you, Americans are some of the laziest people that you'll ever meet. We want something for nothing. I saw a funny joke the other day that said, don't be mad at lazy people. They didn't do anything. <laughs> well, that is the problem. We're lazy. We don't want to do anything, but we want the blessings of God. I'm telling you, it's a fight. It's a fight. Holiness is a fight. Cleansing ourselves. It's our responsibility. From every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We need to fear God. 
I mean, this is us, the children of God, that, that this, this, all of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through what I read in 7.1, all of that's to Christians, all of it. It has no application in any capacity to non-believers. We are the ones that are come out and be separate. And we are the ones that are to bring holiness to completion, quote, in the fear of God. There should be a fear of God for the child of God. And it's healthy. It keeps us from making stupid, foolish decisions and defiling ourselves. There is a lack of fear. And I'll tell you that learning to fear God will help you pursue holiness. It will. Some of the things that I've heard, and listen, I'm not perfect. Don't mistake what I'm about to tell you. I've made my mistakes. I've had to repent of things many times in my 20 years of serving the Lord. But some of the things that I hear of other people, pastors, leaders doing, like I would, I would rather die and have my head cut off before I would allow myself to do something so stinking wicked. And I'm, I'm like, I can't understand. And the reason, I'm terrified. Like I would be really terrified. I hear stories of pastors molesting children, having affairs on their wives. And I think to myself, like, I would be so scared that God would literally strike me down with lightning and kill me. It's just the way I really am. Those things aren't a thought. Terrified to do something that would bring this God who saved me to a place of being angry with me. And I'm telling you, we need a healthy fear. It'll keep you from the little things. I can assure you that those pastors, whoever they are, whom I've referenced, that have made these grave, awful errors, they didn't just wake up one morning and decide, you know what, I'm going to have an affair on my wife. It started with an affair on the computer. That's where it started. It started with an affair, just talking to somebody at work that, felt good talking to you. And the fear of God was not there. And all of a sudden, this pursuit of holiness is something that is a long ways off. And we start making excuses for ourselves. We start looking around saying, well, everybody else is this way. Everybody else is that way. Nobody's perfect, right? Nobody's sinless. You want to fight the good fight? The real war is inside, brothers and sisters. The first thing that every true Christian fights is for the pursuit of holiness. Number two, the true Christian fights to put on the mind of Christ. The true Christian fights to put on the mind of Christ. I want us to look at two scriptures this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. Simple verse here, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare 
are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Pay special attention to these last few words and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You know, one of the things you're going to see this morning on all four points is they tie together, and it's incredible how um, to some way or another, all four points you will find almost in every scripture, right? The idea of holiness, and we have uh, being ready to punish disobedience and having obedience complete tied to our thinking. The true Christian fights to put on the mind of Christ. First thing you need to know is the Bible declares unashamedly we have the mind of Christ, The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will remind you of the things that he had taught. The Holy Spirit teaches us, it leads us. We have the mind of Christ, but we have got to be willing to put it on. We've got to be willing to yield, if you will, and notice the opposite, these negative thoughts. We find, again, I want you to notice in that text I just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the context of war. I told you this is a fight, right? So we're not waging war according to the flesh. We are waging war according to the Spirit. The weapons of our warfare, what do they do? They destroy arguments. That's what they do. There's going to be arguments that are going to try to tell you, you don't need to do this, you don't need to do that. Well, I mean, I believe in Jesus, that's enough. Is it? You believe in Jesus, you just don't believe what he said. Hmm, that's weird. Jesus said, repent, lest you perish. So you believe in Jesus, but you don't believe you have to repent. Apparently, you have come to a place where you believe in the Jesus of your own mind. But he's not the Jesus of this book. He's not the Jesus that taught for three years on this earth and demonstrated that he was clearly God and hung on a cross and died for you and rose from the dead. Because that Jesus said, you have to repent lest you perish. You will find that there are thoughts that will make excuses for sin. You will find there will be thoughts that justify sin. You will find there will be thoughts that uh, will will tell you you don't have to forgive this person. You will find that you'll have thoughts that will uh, cause you to justify um, uh, unhealthy anger, unrighteous anger, all sorts of things. And you want to know, you want to talk about winning the war, you want to talk about fighting the good fight, you're going to have to learn to take your thoughts captive. It is a fight. Sometimes I hesitate to talk about um, the, the, um, um, the temptation to quit the ministry. And I'm going to tell you why I hesitate to talk about it. I hesitate to talk about it because I can't sincerely talk about it from a very experiential point of view. I'm not a big fan of people who have no kids teaching a bunch of people about how to raise their kids. Right? If I want someone doing a marriage seminar, I want someone that's had some successful marriage under their belt. And, man, just the way that I'm built, part of it, uh, part of it is my family, part of it is the supportiveness of my wife. I just, quitting's just not on my list. 
but I can speak from experience in knowing multitudes of people in ministry that have found themselves at the place where they're just tired and they want to quit. And they start thinking things like, well, what's the point? I sow my life into people. I give my life to serving and nobody cares. And everybody turns and eventually everybody leaves. And this person did me wrong and that person did me wrong. And nobody appreciates what I do. I'm just going to quit. <clears throat> when that happens, you've got to take your thoughts captive. You've got to remember why you ever entered and fight in the first place. Is that why you signed up to get a bunch of the approval of everybody and to be a hot shot and to be famous and well-known? Is that why you signed up? Because you might as well go ahead and quit now. We've got to take our thoughts captive and remember, wait a second, I'm not going to stand before any of these people when it all said and done. I'm going to stand before the only one that can tell me, well done, good and faithful servant, and I serve him and I serve him alone, and so I've got to get my focus back on him and off the people. I've got to take my thoughts captive. You know, it's true even what I, what I would call at the congregation level. People come in, get their little feelings hurt. Sister so-and-so looked at them wrong. Grandpa so-and-so said something that they made them feel uncomfortable. This person, they don't like the way this person teaches. They don't like the way this person sings. They don't like this thing or that thing. And we're, we're looking at all the things we don't like. And we're starting to think all of a sudden, well, huh. What's the point? Why even go to church at all? I can do my own thing. I know people that have literally quit church permanently in their mind. And when I've talked to them about it, they've just tried to convince me that where two or three uh, the Lord is, that's where they have church. And so they just have church all the time, like when they're in their car, when they're home, dinner. I mean, it, right? How stupid is that? I'm telling you, there is a fight. That's what I'm telling you. And I'm telling you, if you're not prepared for it, and you don't understand what you're actually fighting, and you got all your energy fighting lesser things that are foolish, you probably won't be able to say, like the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, final strokes of his pen as the ink is running out, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. You have got a fight to put on the mind of Christ. And this morning, by faith, you have got to know with all of your heart, you have got to believe with every fiber of your being, that mind is in you. It's there. You've got to put it on. You've got to fight for that. I want to transition to my next point with something that um, still is connected to putting on the mind of Christ. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. Verse 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, this is one place, one of the few, that I don't think the ESV's interpretation is the best. In fact, the ESV even notes in the bottom of their notes that the back part of that in Christ Jesus on verse 5 is also, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
Here's how verse 5 should really read. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be grasped. But he emptied himself. Yes, you can empty yourself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself. Yes, you can humble yourself. By becoming obedient, yes, you can become obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice we have the concept here of putting on the mind of Christ. Now, let's look at the connection to what that mind is in our third point, the true Christian fight to live selflessly. The true Christian fights to live selflessly. You probably thought this morning when we talked about the true fight, we were going to be talking about something else. No, the the real fight is internal, brothers and sisters. You want to be able to say at the end of your, your journey that you fought the good fight? You're going to have to fight to pursue holiness. You're going to have to fight to put on the mind of Christ. And you're going to have to fight to live selflessly. That's what it's all about. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let's each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Let's look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses uh, 12 through 20, on selflessness. Beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. You know what Paul does right then? He shoots down the argument, just because I can doesn't mean I should. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. In other words... Sexual immorality is the height of selfishness. Sexual immorality is the height of getting what I want for me, pleasing myself to the fullest. That's what sexual immorality is. It's gross. The Word of God says on the opposite side of that, you were not created for that garbage. You were created for God. All that you are, you were created for God. Your hands, your feet, your mouth, your, all that you are, your entire body was created for Him to be used for His glory. Let's go on and look what He says about it. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? I have in my Bible the four words underlined, do you not know? The things that God's people don't know. We should know, but we don't. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall be one flesh. 
But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Look at verse 17 again. That is a deep statement. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What is the conclusion? Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We're talking about fighting to live selflessly. You got to get this settled. You are not your own. That's a fight. No, you don't get to make your own choices. And God is a gentleman, and He won't make the choices for you, but if you're going to do it His way, you don't get to make your own choices. You were bought with a price. You are now God's. You belong to Him. And so when we put on the mind of Christ, we recognize that just as Christ was subject to God, just as Christ had to submit to the will of the Father, so do we have to submit to the will of the Father. And I'm telling you this, living selflessly, truly selflessly, it is a fight. You will find that your flesh will want to argue with you. And you, you see how all these things tie together, taking thoughts captive. You'll find your flesh wants to argue with you and tell you, why can't you just do something for yourself? Why can't you just do this? Why can't you do this? It's not necessarily a sin. Well, Paul says everything that I can do doesn't mean I should. Just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's good. What I really need to do in the context of everything I do is ask myself, am I glorifying God? Am I using what God's given me? Am I using this body of mine, the gifts and talents God has given me to glorify Him? Because at the end of the day, I was bought with a price. My life is not my own. It does not belong to me. And so that which I do have needs to be used for God's glory. This is selfless living, brothers and sisters. It's not just, as in the first passage I read, about being selfless to one another and showing kindness to one another and humbling ourselves in front of one another. We should do that. But you will find selflessness goes deeper than just being nice to other people. Selflessness truly at its heart spiritually comes down to laying down my life like Christ laid down His. Which brings me to Luke chapter 9. Look what Jesus said about it. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. Talking about the fight to live selflessly. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. And he said to all. Now that's good news this morning. Jesus said to all. If anyone... Thank God for that. If anyone would come after me, let him. Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his own soul? Even the invitation to Christ is an invitation to lay down your selfish ways and follow Him instead. Let Him deny Himself. 
This is a fight. I pray this morning the Holy Ghost will somehow take these words and help you see the reality of them in your own life. I am uh, hesitant to waste time proving the point that we are a selfish people and that we've become one of the most selfish cultures that has ever lived on the planet. And in a lot of ways, we're selfish and we don't even know it. Thus, I feel the need to prove that we're selfish. And I don't have the time for that this morning. I just pray the Holy Spirit will burn it in your own soul that it is an actual fight. If you think being selfless is easy, you're probably not being selfless at all and you're patting yourself on the back too much for what little you do to be selfless. It is a fight. I'm going to move, we're going to skip Galatians 2.20 and I'm going to move to my final point this morning. Uh, we're going to find it in 1 Peter chapter 3. The true Christian fights to yearn for heaven. Again, 1 Peter... It's right after the book of Hebrews and James, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. Nope, it's 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. I want you to understand what we're talking about here as my final point, the true Christian fights to yearn for heaven. The first century church was yearning for the return of the Lord, yearning for heaven, yearning for that marriage supper, which we're going to look at as well. Some of them were saying, where's the Lord? I thought He said He was going to return. I thought He said we'd have a new heaven and a new earth. And this is a response to the Christians that were getting anxious for the return of the Lord. Do not overlook this one fact, brothers. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. I don't care how wicked your deeds are. I don't care how far you've gone. I don't care how, how much you have resisted God. God is not willing that anyone perish. But God desires that all come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, it will come like a thief. It, the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? I want to say it again. It's interesting how all of these concepts, we find them tied together, yearning for heaven, living, the reason to live holy, putting on the mind of Christ, living selflessly. They are all connected now, since these things are going to be, since earth as we know it is going to vanish and pass away, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, what sort of people ought we be? We should live lives of holiness and godliness. 
waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We're going to go to one more verse and be done today. Um, in a moment where we see the same concept of without spot and blemish as it relates to waiting for your wedding day. But I want to look here at this idea since you are waiting. Are we waiting? Are we waiting? You know, there's a great balance and recognizing that we are in the world, but not of it. You need to have a home. God's not calling all of us to be homeless. You need to have a roof over your head. You need to have food to feed your children. That means you need to have a job. That means you need to have income. You need to pay your bills. You need to keep the promises you've made when you take loans. These are things the Bible teaches us we need to do. But it's real easy, especially in our culture where we are um, spoiled. And I use that word intentional. We've gone beyond the place of being blessed to now we're spoiled. It's very easy to get caught up in our little world. And even the idea of leaving this place and going to heaven sounds like, oh, I don't want to do that. I mean, I'm this close to finishing this goal, and then I've got this goal, and then I've got this thing. And, and, and we find that our hearts are actually longing for more of earth. You will never find that concept anywhere in New Testament Christianity. And I will tell you, it is a fight to yearn for heaven, to sincerely hunger and long for it. It takes intentional fighting to keep my mind and and be reminded that all that I have, no matter how much I possess, I'm not taking it with me. I didn't bring anything into the world. I'm not taking anything out of the world. So in the end, it's all fairly meaningless, and it can only be used if it's used correctly to somehow, someway point people to Jesus. And I've got to get off my eyes of building my own little earthly kingdom and building my own earthly little things and praying for God to help me build my earthly stuff. And I've got to get my head and my my eyes and my heart focused to where I yearn for heaven. I'm going to show you that even yearning for heaven will impact the way that you live concerning holiness, putting on the mind of Christ and living selflessly. The final passage this morning, Ephesians chapter 5. Um, we're going to read verses 25 through 27. That's what I gave them back there. I want you to look at verse 32. You guys don't need to pull it up, but if you're in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, there's just an important statement where it says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So in Ephesians chapter 5, we have this great marriage passage. It says more about husbands and wives and what marriage is supposed to look like than any passage in the entire Bible. And then on the end of the passage, Paul says this mystery is profound concerning marriage, 
but I'm actually referring to Christ in the church. And so while we're getting to read about husbands and wives, we're actually reading about Christ in the church. Look what it says in verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. This is the will of Christ for her, his church, us, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing Notice again that she should be holy and without blemish. This is what Christ is looking for when He returns. You know, the picture that we have here, I'm going to go ahead and ask our, um, our song leaders if you guys would get ready to prepare a song of invitation. You know, the picture that we have here is the picture of a wedding that's about to happen. Would you agree with me that when people are getting ready for their wedding, it is the period of time that they are most taking care of themselves. You know, trying to get looking good for the wedding, trying to get fit for the wedding, trying to get everything ready for the wedding, trying to stay pure for the wedding, trying to, you want that wedding day to be special. And when we think of heaven and we yearn for heaven and we yearn for this time where we are completely, fully connected to Christ, ushered into heaven, we should be looking at it as a bride trying to keep herself perfectly ready for that wedding date. So that on that date, when that date comes, when we walk down the aisle and we see Christ, we are without spot and blemish and, and we are pure and thinking in that context, yearning for heaven, looking forward to that event. We're seeing it as a reality. It will influence us to want to be holy, to live and fight for holiness. We must fight for these things.